0: so you're a lawyer and your clients are squeezing you for lower fees. How do you put more cash in your pocket? We want to expose you to new ways of practicing law. Endless hours with no home life and a lease on an expensive office are so 19 dollars It's time to make a change for the better. Here to help you with that are your hosts Ron Vokstaller and Kirsten Mayfield. Welcome
1: to the 1958 Lawyer Podcast.
0: Welcome to The 1958 Lawyer. I'm your co-host, Ron Boxstaller.
1: And I'm Kirsten Mayfield, and we have with us today Frank Ramos, Jr. He's a partner at Clark Silver Glate in Miami, Florida, where he practices in the areas of commercial litigation, catastrophic personal injury, medical malpractice, and product liability. But how I know Frank and how you probably know Frank is from his short and insightful LinkedIn posts. He's got 58,000 plus followers on LinkedIn. He talks about everything from practicing law and running a law firm to really just being a human being and a leader. He's written 15 books for lawyers, edited five, and they span topics just like his LinkedIn post from the very practical, like his SLDO strategic planning manual, which he co-authored with John C. Trimble, to the more personal, like his book, Confessions of a Latino Lawyer. And thank you so much for being with us today, Frank.
2: Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, you're also into jazz as we discussed. You've got some amazing art on the back of your wall. So in oak park where i live we usually have this awesome springtime festival it's called jazz thaw we couldn't have it this year so do you have a recommendation for a record or artist my husband and i should check out
2: uh well you know i listen to a lot of the old classical stuff people can't watch us but i have a record player to my right and i have a bunch of old jazz albums and i have uh you know some of the classics like frank sinatra and i have Miles Davis and a bunch of these others, The uh, and there's some art you mentioned that's right behind me, one of which is a picture of Ira Sullivan, who's right behind me, who is actually a big Chicago jazz artist, and every year he would celebrate his birthday in Chicago. He passed away last year due to complications with cancer at 87. Uh, he was actually a member of our church and played with both of our boys who both play jazz and other types of music. But uh, I, I'm a big believer in sort of the bebop 1950s era uh, that uh, is somewhat going through a bit of a renaissance now. So
1: yes, it is. All right, great. I'm going to put links in that show notes as well to that, so people can check them out too, not just me. And I appreciate it because I love the jazz. Saw it was really sad to not have it this year. I can just talk your ear off about jazz, but uh, let's get into. <laughs> The law and the legal industry and everything. And let's start super easy. What brought you to start posting on LinkedIn and building this network that you're building?
2: You know, I've been on LinkedIn for a number of years. I think it got on around 2008 or 9 when it was very much sort of a place where you share your resume and you did little else on the platform. And I didn't really understand the platform at the time. I know people were trying to connect on it, trying to talk about their careers and their jobs and what they did. And I didn't really understand at the time. I revisited the platform a few times until around 2016 when I just wrote a book called The Associates Handbook. It's a free book. And I was trying to promote it and I thought, oh, LinkedIn would be a good place. I mean, a lot of young lawyers are there. And let me try to share some of my thoughts from that book on that platform. And so I would just take little excerpts and share it. And then at some point early on in... That process around, I want to say August 2016, I decided I was going to post daily. And I committed myself to doing that. I've been doing that ever since. I've posted every day, maybe with the exception of once or twice in those four or almost not five years, uh, and developed a bit of a following along the way. And my posts, as you're probably familiar with, are very general. Uh, they're very much geared toward younger lawyers. I have two sons. They're 22 and 19. Neither of them are into law. They're both into music. But I kind of use this as a way because they both follow me there as a way to kind of give them nice fatherly advice. And a lot of times, uh, dads realize that their kids won't always listen to them, but sometimes you'll have other people comment on your post, say, hey, that's it's a really good idea. And then your son's like, Oh, well, if somebody else thinks it's a good idea, then my dad must actually have something to say to me. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, a lot of my posts are basically like me talking to my sons more than anybody else. So that's a lot of what I do on that forum. And early on in my practice, I've been. Practicing since 1997, graduated from University of Miami, and around 2000 2001, I had a real bad case of imposter syndrome. I, I didn't think I was particularly good at what I was doing. I didn't think I was particularly effective, and I took it upon myself to start writing. I started basically reducing what I thought I knew about the practice into small articles. They're sort of how-to articles, and and I've been doing that ever since, on and off. in some there are periods of my career where I haven't done much writing at all. But I want to say in the last five years or so, I've been writing a lot. And uh, most of my books, if not all of them, are pretty much how-to books. They're how to take a deposition, how to try a case, how to market your practice, how to do public speaking, so on and so forth. And whenever I do that, the book, first and foremost, is really for me. It's really for me to understand how to do that type of activity. You know, if I really want to know how to take a deposition, uh, I started uh, a deposition bootcamp. camp. Which is, uh yes, I wanted to teach young lawyers, but I really wanted to learn not only the practice from sitting down and thinking through it, but, you know, talking to other lawyers did it as well. And so uh, the process for me is really a selfish one primarily at first, and then it's an opportunity for me to then share with others what I learned through that process. And a lot of young lawyers don't have a lot of mentors. They don't have people who they can listen to or talk to. And a lot of firms don't have the resources or the time. The partners are busy building hours and they don't really want to spend time with young lawyers. And, uh, and it's very stressful. And a lot of young lawyers don't know what to say or do or how to interact or how to respond to given situations. So I try to and my writings want to give them sort of, uh, you know, to tell them to you know, keep their chins up and things are gonna be okay. And no matter what you do, there's ways of addressing and resolving those issues. And then also try to provide them real practical advice. Having now done this for over five years now, you kind of run out of things, the practical stuff to say, and a lot of that stuff is in my books. So I've kind of really moved beyond that. I'll still do some of that, but a lot more of it is just, you know, you're gonna be okay. You know, even when it's not okay, it's going to be okay, uh, type of uh, postings. And uh, and if you want to learn how to take a depot, almost all my books are free. You can go to my website, mammymentor.com, and you can find it there and look for my materials there. But I'm, I'm really trying to lend any uh, an ear. And if young lawyers want to call me or email me, uh, I'll usually set up a time uh, to talk to them, usually in the evenings or the weekends when I'm not in the middle of something uh, in a case or a motion or a depot. And I found that everybody pretty much has the same questions. Everybody has the same worries and concerns and fears. And that within 15 minutes, I can, I don't know if I can solve all your problems, but I can help you figure out how to address them. Because they're all pretty much in the same boat. You know, We've all been through this process before, if you're a lawyer and really any professional. I mean, you start a new career, you're wondering if you're doing it properly, you're wondering what your long-term uh, prognosis is going to be in terms of what you want to do and how you want to get there and what your goals may be. And I think a lot of people just need someone to say, you know, look, you know, what do you want to be in 5, 10, 15 years? What are the long-term larger goals? You know, what do you think you need to do to get here from here to there? You know, these are some suggestions, but you know, these certainly is not the whole number of suggestions and, and you can pursue it however you want to pursue it. And then most people, once they uh, have an end in mind and have a pathway to get there, then they can figure it out. And so that's kind of what I've been doing on that platform for, I guess now for five years. And it's grown into quite a large tribe that I get to interact with on a, on a daily basis.
1: So, you're a partner at your firm. Do you have like that sort of like leadership and role in your firm too? How big is your firm?
2: We're a small firm, there's like eight or nine of us. And, you know, we've had different lawyers coming through our firm over the years. And and yeah, I, I take a mentoring role to so the younger lawyers should come here and I'll sit down with them and kind of talk through whatever issues they may have, whether they're handling my cases or another attorney's cases. And, you know, what people don't appreciate from the practice of law is that, yes, there is a certain skill set you need and there's a certain craft to it. But there's very much a process to it. And and what I try to do is I take every activity and I break it down to uh, almost like a flow chart. Like, you know, these are the steps you need to follow to get from A to B to C. And that should get you 90% of the way there the other 10% is the experience and skill set and and sort of the imagination but a lot of what we do i don't want to say it's rote but it it does have a certain process involved and i've spent a lot of time studying what that process is i actually have a book it's just a book of checklists that's the one book yeah, i actually I have that. to sell it's for the aba and it's basically every activity you do as a lawyer whether it's an intake or talking to a witness or taking a deposition or trying a case or even leading your firm or hiring somebody or doing an interview. Basically, it's just a, a list of checklists, and it goes through steps A through Z on how I do it. And you know, how I do it may not be how everybody else does it, but at least it provides a roadmap on how to achieve it. And I think that's true for anything we do in the practice or pretty much in any career.
0: Frank, take us back to, you mentioned imposter syndrome. Is this self-diagnosed? <laughs>
2: it is. It is self-diagnosed.
0: I think a lot of us have that. And I've never actually put a title to it, but I'm thinking even in myself going, God, what do I actually know? What can I do for anyone? What, you know? And it sounds like you took that and said, okay, I'm going to get better at it. And you know, the old adage is the teacher makes the greatest student is what comes to mind as I was listening to you. No,
2: it's a great point. I think each of us struggles with it at some point, especially early on in our careers, and we need some sort of ratification that we actually know what we're doing. And I did it through writing, not so much to show people I could write, but just so that I can reduce to writing what I already knew and in the process get better at it. Because you know, you sit down and let's say you want to argue a hearing And say, well, I know, how do I prepare for a hearing in front of a state court judge? Let me. these are the eight steps that come to mind. There's probably three more. Let me think through this a little bit more. Let me add those steps. Let me talk to some other people who go to hearings and get their input. And suddenly I have 14 steps. And now it's like, okay, these are the 14 steps. If I follow these 14 steps, I'm 90% of the way home. And that was kind of what I did. I've been doing that since 2001. And the last few years I've been doing it. I've moved away from articles and done it in the form of Books. Uh, but that's what I do, and I think that's pretty applicable to any career. I don't care if you're a musician or a physician or an accountant. You know, there's a process to everything we do, not to sort of knock out or eliminate the creativity from it, but it really helps have that checklist. Kind of like when pilots get on before they fly, they always go through their checklist to make sure the thing won't fall out the sky, uh, and it's no different for any one of
0: us. So, give us some ideas. So, that we're talking confidence. And we got a lot of young attorneys that are you know, no one wants to admit it, but I think struggling with their confidence to make, you know, can I do this? You know, what's some advice you can give them or you've given to, you know, if you don't want to write a book, here's other ways you can build your confidence level so that you could, you know, fulfill your abilities as an attorney. You
2: know, I think public speaking is really important and there are different ways of approaching it. Obviously, we're still in the pandemic. You really can't go out and speak that much, but there are opportunities to do it through Zoom and other platforms, you know, when things return to normal, or at least to the new normal, I strongly recommend that people uh, join their local Toastmasters. It's very inexpensive. I think it's like 75 or $80 a year for membership. And it is a great way to develop and work on your public speaking. I, I strongly recommend people do improvisation. I took a couple of improv classes a number of years ago, you know, comedy improv and to sit down in front of an audience and improvise something funny. I mean, that takes a lot of mental bandwidth and it, Provide and it really gets over your nerves. I think so much of young lawyers that they're afraid of, you know, they're going to say something dumb or people are going to react the wrong way. And how do I get in front of a judge or a jury or interact with a client? And so you kind of have to put yourself in uncomfortable positions repeatedly over a long period of time, and eventually you overcome that. I mean, there was a point where I was just scared to death of public speaking, just getting in front of an audience, and even introducing myself would get me close to getting a heart attack. But now, it's uh, I, I find it kind of you know very comfortable and. If anything, I, I, I try to prepare as little as possible. I try to improvise as much, and I find that more enjoyable. I don't really enjoy having uh, the PowerPoint and kind of ticking through the PowerPoint and, uh, you know, give me a topic, give me, you know, t- let me know how long I need to go, and I got this. And... I went from being a point where I was completely frightened of my own shadow in front of an audience to a point where, you know, you put me in front of a large crowd like two seconds before and tell me what to talk about. And I'll talk about it. And I'm not unique in that way that anybody can go through that process. So for people who are going through imposter syndrome, you know, figure, figure out what skill sets you really need to develop, public speaking, writing, uh, client relations, you know, confidence obviously is a big issue, you know, having a certain gravitas, owning in the room and f- Find opportunities that really may not be in the the legal field, but opportunities where you develop that skill set so that when you're interacting with the client, you're dealing with opposing counsel, they realize that they're dealing with somebody of substance, like you're not going to be just pushed over by them.
0: Boy, Kirsten, we should have talked to Frank early on when we started doing shows. Our first shows were scripted and it was the worst show you could ever imagine. And they've gotten much better now, obviously, but uh, yeah, taking us back how nervous we were and we were writing everything down and having notes and Wow. You just hit, hit hit the nail on the head there, Frank.
2: <laughs> yeah, I was doing a podcast for a while. We did like about 100 episodes. It's not on anymore, although you can listen to the old episodes. It's a conversation with the Defense Research Institute. And I didn't even, a lot of times I didn't really study the guests per se. I would just like my, my I would do the standard intro. Our younger son's music was the music that would play me in. And then I would tell them, oh, you know, in 30 seconds, tell me a little about yourself. And that was really the first time I would hear about them and make a point not to really learn about them. And then we spend a half hour talking and then that was it. And then we'd shut it down and then, you know, the music would play us out and that would be the end of the conversation. Uh, and people would just go crazy. Lawyers would want to be like, "Why? Well, I need to know what questions you're asking me. It's like, <laughs> honestly, I do not know what questions I'm going to be asking you. We're, we're going to have a conversation very much like if I ran into you at a cocktail party, we're going to just have a conversation. Because if I have to actually think about what I'm going to tell you, I'm going to bore myself to death. And uh, and it's not going to be very pleasant. you know, like I, I know how to have a conversation. I assume you know how to have a conversation. Let's just have a conversation. And that's kind of how those those went. So I think there's something about just being in the moment and just being able to do that. And that takes time and practice, obviously. I'm, I'm sure my first few uh, interviews probably weren't that great, but uh, you know by the time you get to 50 or 60, you're, it's kind of second. Nature becomes a big road, and I think that's true for young lawyers. You know, that first hearing, you argue, that first deposition you take, that first client interaction is going to be rough. And it just it is what it is. You know, it's like I've written over four hundred articles. My first hundred articles probably sucked. You know, there's just no getting away from that. Uh, you know, I, I don't even keep them. I've, I've I don't keep my old articles. I, I, I would I would hate to even read them at this point. Uh, <laughs> but it's a process. You have to go through the process. You have to suck at first. You have to suck for sometimes a very long time. Uh, And then eventually you get good at it and and the passions gonna drive you forward. And at some point you have to do something that you really enjoy and you love and you have to make this distinguishing factor between is it, is fear holding me back or am I just not good at this? If you're not really good at that, maybe you're not, you shouldn't be pursuing it. But if it's the fear factor, then you really owe it to yourself to try to get past that fear factor. Because now again, I speak all the time. If I were to let fear get the best of me, I wouldn't be speaking at all. And, uh, but if, but if I got past the fear and realized, well, I'm not really that good at this, then it's like, all right, well, I'll I'll do something else.
1: I feel like,
0: go ahead, Kirsten.
1: I was just going to say, it kind of felt like you hit the nail on the head earlier when you said, like, attorneys, they want to know the questions. It's an area where people are used to being prepared and preparing. So I feel like the hill to climb with the attorney community is probably a lot steeper than, say, your artistic sons reading your. LinkedIn posts.
2: It is. It's it's a little odd because what I'm doing is kind of unusual. I'm kind of the uh, Tony Robbins of lawyers, basically on LinkedIn, and that really wasn't what I wanted to do. That really wasn't like uh, I came up one morning and said, "Oh, I'm gonna be you know less brown for lawyers." You know, that just wasn't my idea, but it kind of worked out that way. And I'll get a lot of times other calls and emails from people I've never even spoken or. Discuss anything with, and they're very grateful for what I've posted, and you know, it's 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 reassuring, it's nice, but I don't really do it for that way. You know, there's there's if I can get somebody to if somebody's in a bad situation, either emotionally or at work or something, and they read something that I said that helps them, then I feel I accomplished something. And if I never hear from them, that's fine. I'm not really looking to get them to affirm what I'm doing because often what we say what we do uh, has certain ripples effects that we're, we don't even appreciate and maybe years down the road we hear like so-and-so say oh you know you wrote something or you said something or for your podcast and you know uh, you know I heard your podcast on such and such topic and that really altered the trajectory of my career my life and, uh, and I'm sure it's probably part of the reason why you guys do this you know just we all work we all pay the bills we all have to put in the time but if that's all we did it'd be kind of a very menial existence and not being able to transcend that and say and do something that goes above and beyond that, you know, that's kind of, that's, that's what I'm trying to do. And I think that's what we all try to do and try to achieve.
0: Frank, you have a unique perspective, uh, as an attorney, uh, what are some of your passions? What are the things that, you know, really excite you?
2: You know, I love to write. I'm actually working on a novel now. Um, it's, <laughs> the reason I'm laughing is that whenever you write a novel, you try to find, a uh, a genre that's gonna fit into it. If it's if it's a brand new genre that you created, you're not gonna find anybody to pick it up. And I'm writing a legal thriller slash science fiction novel, and there are actually a few people in that space, but they're very few, and there really isn't much of a demand <laughs> for that type of book. But I'm doing it anyway because I really enjoy it. It's uh, it's set sometime in the future. It's basically uh, a time where lawyers are being pushed out and trying to be replaced with androids, and the protagonist has been asked by a corporate client to be second to have his trial second chaired by a new android and he kind of has to go through with it and and there's a lot, there's a big backstory to it and everything else and the thing with science fiction is that it really kind of talks about who we are as people and where we're going and talks about much larger issues about you know what's man and what's humanity and you know what makes us different than our creators and you know and so on and so forth so I, I like big ideas. You know, uh, if you follow my LinkedIn, you kind of get that sense. And I love talking to people who like big ideas. And if I get in a room with people and we're, or we're talking about some, you know, about the future of the practice or about, uh, you know, the future of work, you know, I, that's, that's a room I want to be in.
0: And that kind of ties right into, I mean, maybe it's not that much science fiction anymore with artificial intelligence replacing your Android and, and, and the concept. Things are changing. You know, what's the future of law look like?
2: That's a great question. I I do think that more and more of what we do is going to be picked up by AI. And I think the first step you'll see is a lot of people outsourcing work to other countries like India and elsewhere, where the hourly rate is much less and they have very high standards for education. And that's being seen now where legal assistants, even paralegals, are from India or from the East or from Latin America and they're paying them a fraction of what they would pay an American employee. And I think the next step is like, well, why do we have to pay anybody at all? Can't we just get our, uh, some artificial intelligence to draft this contract or interact with this line or draft this motion? Uh, you, know, you see uh, startups where you, know, you, you tell them an idea for a motion and they're trying to figure out how to draft the motion for you. And are, are we going to get to the point where we are having you know, trials being done by androids Maybe. I don't know. Like, you know, the idea of that 20 years ago sounded preposterous, and now it doesn't. Now it seems like, you know, it's within our grasp. And and where does that leave humanity? You know, are we going to be in a post-work world where 90% of the jobs are done by machines and we have nothing to do? And, you know, and how do we support ourselves and how does society support itself? Um, and so I think the law has somehow managed to sort of push that off. But I think due to COVID and other things, we're all realizing technology is very much part of what we do and part of our practice our clients are realizing that a lot of the stuff we thought we had to do in person, we can do remotely. Uh and I think the next step after that, or maybe two steps further down the road, is well, do we really need you at all? You know, or at least do we need you for many of the tasks we thought we needed you for? You know, is is, is there a legal Zoom? Where we can just basically type stuff up and print out, you know, going beyond just a simple will or simple incorporation, you know, can can we draft a contract uh, from whole cloth without you? And there are people out there trying to figure that out. They're trying to, pe- there, there's a whole industry trying to make us obsolete, and you know. More power to them, you know. I'm, you know, that's that's not really my debate per se. It, it, it is what it is, and uh, I think lawyers for so much so long have been trying to get in the way of technology, and technology is coming whether you want to or not, and you have to figure out where you fit it in, as opposed to trying to
0: prevent it from happening. Yeah, how can you work alongside technology? I think is where we, where you need to be thinking. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah, I'm going to take a more optimistic point of view on this because I think and I hope that what will happen is it just frees up more time for attorneys to bring the actual change they want to in the world. They can focus on those things that they're passionate about and maybe, you know, impact the law because we've got robots doing the the grunt work and the boring work. We can have more passion and bright ideas take the center stage. I agree
0: with that. I think you got to break this down even further to B2C and B2B. So if you're a family lawyer, I think that leads more towards the emotional side where you're going to want to be with someone that can walk you through and keep you calm and you know, in control versus uh, you know, if you're an attorney, big attorney for Microsoft, it's going to be more AI is going to be taking over a lot, a lot of work that could you know, be done. So I think you got to look at what area you're practicing in and then take it step-by-step step as to how you can fit in and, and, and apply technology to assist your firm.
1: But you can't apply technology without knowing your processes and procedures. So that's where you go pick up Frank's book, uh, checklists, <laughs> and then get your robots to, to to do the checklist. That's right. It all comes together.
2: Well, without appreciating it, I brought on the next uh, next age.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, so you got, I think,
0: over 20 books you've written. Do you got one that really stands out as, You love, that's what I really like.
2: Yeah, there's a book I wrote, and I forgot when I wrote, it. to be honest. It was called Go Motivate Yourself, Uh, Stop Chasing Gurus and Do the Hard Work. And the the purpose of that book was that we did some people asking, oh, can you motivate me? Can you inspire me? And I realized that people were asking the wrong question, that if I have to motivate you, then I'm motivating you to do something you don't really want to do. And so if you figure out what you want to do, you don't need a whole lot of external motivation. That's going to be your internal motivation, pushing you forward to achieve those goals. And so the point of the book, which is directed to lawyers, but really is for anyone, is identifying where your talents and your passions and your dreams intersect. Because you can find in a Venn diagram, draw three circles and draw a circle with your passions, one with your talents, and one with your dreams, and find that sort of inner point of intersection, that's really where... Your uh, purposes, you know, that's where you know your mission is. Whatever word you want to use, your destiny, but that's where you're supposed to be. I I don't think it is a coincidence that any of us have a certain number of talents, and I think we're supposed to develop and, and and grow those. And I don't think it's a coincidence that any of us have certain passions or have certain dreams. You know, I think you know a lot of us have had them. Uh, since early on and you know, people always ask you, oh, what did you want to do when you were a kid? And you know, moving beyond being a baseball star, or movie star, you know, we had, you know, a lot of us wanted to be lawyers or doctors or firefighters or whatever else. And there's something we learned from all that. And so that book, which is a free book, and again, you can go to MiamiMentor.com and download it, it basically kind of walks you through, helps you figure out, you know, who you are. And if you can figure that out, then you can kind of get to where you are. And I think it's a scary process because a lot of people are, you know, 10, 15 years in their career and they realize, well, I shouldn't have done this. I really should not have done this. Um, and I think that book is frightening to some people because they're gonna realize, wow, I need to make a, a U-turn here. Um, but it's better to make a U-turn later in life than not to do it at all. And sometimes what you find is that, you know, maybe it's not ideal, but you can make the best of a bad situation, or maybe you know, you're not at the right firm, or you're not pursuing the right area of law. Uh, maybe you're not, you know, maybe certain fears are getting in your way, as I mentioned earlier. So that's why I like that book. It really has nothing to do with how to take that position. It's pretty much, you know, how to figure out what to do with your life.
0: I think too many attorneys, they want to, they get into law, maybe early on there, it's holistic and they want to help change lives, but yet 72% of Americans can't afford legal representation. So then it comes down to money. right? And I think so many of us are maybe not intentionally driven, but at the end of the day, driven by finances that, uh, and oftentimes can lead to negative consequences or you know bad decisions.
2: Yeah, so, absolutely. Absolutely. it's
0: a great book. I think uh that one maybe even a week yeah, Kirsten you and I should uh you know pick up and 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 read. Let's talk about the mental health issues that are plaguing the legal industry and maybe that kind of ties into you know go motivate yourself. How can we address them? No, I think
2: we have to do a better job acknowledging that they exist. I think uh, we're still in a profession, a career, especially among litigators, where you're supposed to, like, if you talk about mental health, you're seen as weak. Um, And I think there's been a lot of progress made in those parts. You see a lot of states requiring mental health CLE now, or at least promoting mental health CLE. There's a big movement toward mindfulness. There's a big movement toward acknowledging uh, different addictions and different issues and whether it's alcoholism or drug abuse or whatever it might be, people dealing with depression, anxiety, and and there's a much greater awareness. And if you go to most conferences now, you'll find that there is one or two presentations on those topics. There's uh, hotlines to call. There are you know, forums where you can meet with other people. And I think we're moving in the right direction. I still think it's fairly slow and glacial. And I think a lot of firms don't want to deal with that for a variety of reasons. One, they don't want to go to the expense. They don't want to sort of open up that can of worms. They don't want to acknowledge those issues. They, uh, some of them feel like if they address it, it's basically going to sort of a work-life balance discussion, which means that their people want to work less. And that's what's really driving the uh, depression and the anxiety. And they don't want to like have their people work less hours. So it's a tough career to... Deal with those issues. And every year, year after year, uh, lawyers have the highest suicide rate, the highest divorce rate, highest rates of depression, and anxiety, highest rates of alcoholism and drug abuse. I mean, it's really uncanny. I mean, you compare our profession to anyone else's and we're like really at the top of all those lists consistently year after year, decade after decade. Nothing really has changed in that regard. And so I think one is awareness. I think, you know, we have to bring more awareness to the situation. And two, firms have to take ownership of the issue, of, of the situation. You know, we're much, over the last year, I think firms have done a good job in diversity, especially with, uh, uh, you know, the recent trials are going on with the police and all all that. Uh, but I don't think we've done the same uh, when it comes to mental health. And I think more has to be done to address it.
0: You actually, uh, I think you wrote about it in a blog, talking about, uh, you know, younger attorneys don't want to work uh the long hours that maybe you know someone that's been practicing law for a long time has been doing for, and they're just—it's natural, right? So, how are we addressing this with younger attorneys? Are we uh, holding them back, or are they still going to have the opportunities if they don't? If they want to have a family and enjoy their life, also.
2: You know, I think a lot of it is firm-driven. You have to find firms with the right culture. Some firms have it, some don't. And I'm not here to disparage any specific firms, but these days there's so much transparency online that yard lawyers have access to information that I never had when I graduated you know, 23, 24 years ago. And there are platforms, there are chat rooms, there are message boards that you will find out most likely than not about any firm and what they're really about. And listen, you know, really listen to what people are saying. Uh, there are some sour grapes, there are some people who are probably exaggerating, or maybe, you know, left under bad circumstances, but do your due diligence, you know, really look at a firm, uh, and be willing to ask the hard questions at an interview. Uh, even if it means you don't get the job, you know, if a firm is not there to give you a job, you're asking the hard questions, Find out a firm you want to work at, you know, I mean, so you have to figure out, what you want to do, where you want to be. Obviously, it's a two-way street. You know, the firm wants to hire you to bill hours and work hard and so forth. And you're there to you know, help the firm achieve their mission and their vision, and their values. But you also have to... First of all, you have to know what you want to do, where you want to be and be honest with yourself. Uh, and it's more than just getting a job and paying the bills. You really have to have a sense of self and then commit to yourself to pursue it. Now, some people don't have that opportunity their privilege. You know, People have student loans, they have other things. And sometimes people have to take jobs that they ideally don't want to take because the market is what the market is. But if you do have choices and you have several interviews or you have several opportunities, really try to figure out whether the opportunity lines up with where you want to be five, 10 years from now.
0: Kind of takes you back to that old adage, negotiate from a position of power. So when you're out looking, make sure you're doing your research and talking to as many uh, opportunities as you can.
2: Yeah, it's like very similar to buying a car. Like when I bought our our first car, I don't know how many years ago. I just there just wasn't that much information out there, and now I can go to a car dealership and say, "Look, this is what you paid for it. This is what I want for it," and and there's no disputing it because it's all there. Like I mean, people who sell cars these days must be pulling their hairs. They're just like, uh, I'm sure there's some people who don't do the due diligence, but now it's just so easy to do.
0: I think I was actually when I was on vacation this past two weeks, I read an article about uh, some states are looking to do away with the dealerships you know the mandatory dealerships and that kind of ties to that all the information to buy the car is right online do i really need to go into a dealership and negotiate with a salesperson i mean tesla that was a big case with tesla when they were banned from certain states now there's a couple other electrical uh, manufacturing vehicle companies that are saying hey we don't want to deal with the dealership so will that change or will the law stop them from you know moving on right great point you wrote a book or I, I don't have it on t- in front top of my head, but it's about Latino lawyers, uh, confessions of a Latino lawyer. Talk to us a little bit about how we can make some more progress with uh, you know, Latinos, women, African-Americans practicing in law. You
2: know, I think diverse lawyers have a very unique story that if you're not a diverse lawyer, you just don't know it. And the point of that book is very—it's probably my shortest book. It's almost like a a long article, really. But it basically kind of is a summary of my life from the prism of being Latino growing up in Chicago, which is where I grew up, and then moving down here to Miami and going to high school, college, and law school down here, then practicing law. And my experience is very unique to Anglo lawyers, but it's very common to to other diverse lawyers. Um, You know, I was the first one to... I was actually the second person to go to college, my family first person to, go to law school, so I didn't have that network. I grew up in a, sort of an inner city, and so I didn't go to great schools. I, I grew up in, a, in an extended family, where everybody spoke Spanish, and, and we're all working class. And so you know right now you know there's this idea there's this notion and it's common among both african american and, and hispanic lawyers that you're kind of like you're kind of like the family bank you know like you're you're like the one or two professionals in the family if anybody needs something financially they call you first and and you know in and, and a sense of obligation you you help them and so you know whereas if you're sort of a second or third generation anglo that's not even an issue. Like for us, it's like, yeah, you know, we have to help, you know, I think there's was, uh, was like two years ago where we had to like help pay for two funerals because they, they couldn't afford to pay the funeral. Um, and so th- those, those financial obligations, those familial obligations are very different. You know, it's not uncommon to get pulled over by the police when I was growing up because I was Hispanic and, what, you know, what is a Ramos doing in a nice neighborhood? Uh, especially, you know, we, we tend to drive older, beat up more cars. And so obviously we're some sort of a threat. Um, and so those experiences always color like anybody else, for example, any, any person we go through life, you know, the way we were raised, the friends we had, what we watched, we listened to those all color our experiences. But the point of my book was that you have to understand if you're going to hire diverse lawyers, to really understand their story because each of us has a story and understand how that story influences them and their decision-making. And if you can't meet them halfway and really try to understand their story, then they're probably not going to stick around. I think a lot of firms actually do a pretty good job hiring lawyers. They do a pretty bad job keeping them. And I think a lot of that comes down to the fact is that, well, we know, we hired you. You know, this is how we do things, and a lot of lawyers are like, well, that's, I mean, I, I don't really have a point of reference. I, you know, I don't know how to deal with clients, or you know, that was really where I came up with. And and the Anglo lawyers, like, you know, they have family members who are lawyers, and you know, their fathers and mothers are lawyers, and and they they get it. And diverse lawyers, are like, I, I don't really get it. And that's less true now because you know, it's like you know, it, it, there's more second and third generation African American and Hispanic lawyers, but it's still very much. Uh, You know, if if you're going to see a first-generation lawyer, it's much more common among diverse populations than it is in in Anglo populations. So if firms want to hire people and keep them, they have to understand them. Uh, And that's true for anybody, to be honest. I mean, that's true for any lawyer. If you want to keep your lawyers, your paralegals, your staff, figure out what motivates them and help them achieve their personal goals, separate apart whatever goals they may have for your firm. And they're going to stick around. I mean, uh, chances are they're going to stick around.
0: Great stuff. We'd like to finish off with one question, Frank, and that kind of comes down to what's the one thing you'd like to see changed in the business of law going forward?
2: You know, I think there has to be more time focused on mentoring and developing young lawyers. And I think it's become too ad hoc. And I really believe Associate training, young lawyer training, isn't that complicated. I mean, it really isn't that complicated. And more time has to be spent by voluntary bar associations, by law firms, by senior partners, by even junior lawyers on training young lawyers. And not just the hard skills, but the soft skills. I think the soft skills are actually more important. You know, Encouraging young lawyers to get involved in organizations and take leadership positions. Encouraging young lawyers to do Toastmasters or Improvs. Uh, bringing young lawyers to meetings with clients, uh, you know, getting them in situations where they're uncomfortable and moving past that, you know, helping them make decisions, uh, because the faster they can do that, the faster they can go out there and interact with clients. Clients can smell desperation. Clients can smell when you're insecure. Clients can smell when you're not on top of your game. And that is learned, that it comes from experience, that comes from being in sort of these hard knock situations and moving beyond them. And the faster you can get young lawyers in those situations where they're uncomfortable and realizing it's not the end of the world when, you know, things don't go their way and they've learned from it and they've learned how to interact with people. I think that's really important. And I think we're kind of losing a generation of lawyers that are not being trained in in, in those regards.
0: So I got to ask the follow-up questions. How do we do that in this remote world we're, we're, we're living in, especially if it continues?
2: You know, I think remotely, I think more time to be spent having senior lawyers kind of think through like how they learned what they did and then kind of conveying that and figuring out new ways of training people. You know, if you're going to speak, obviously not to speak in front of a big group, but there are hundreds of opportunities to speak in Zoom rooms and lead Zoom conferences and have Zoom podcasts like this. So, you know, get your young lawyers out there, push them out, uh, uh will they crash and burn? Maybe at first, yeah. And they'll learn from it, and they'll move on. And it's I think there's this fear like I can't have my yarn lawyers out there because they made me look like idiots. Yeah, they are, and you probably look like an idiot too. And, and that's just the way it is. You know, just I, I my first few presentations were horrible. And now I like to think I do it much better. And I did it because each time I did it, I learned something from the process. And so you have to try to create opportunities for yarn lawyers to go out there and stub their toe and, you know, get knocked to the ground, to the canvas a few times and they get up and they realize it's not the end of the world they're going to be fine. They're going to be just fine.
1: Yeah. I've never read a story about someone who reached success without saying I failed a ton before I got to that point. So it seems like it's a mandatory first step.
2: Absolutely.
0: All right. So we've been talking to Frank Ramos, partner at Clark Silver Glate. Real quick referrals. Uh, if you got clients they are going down to Miami or going down to Florida, something happens, they can call Frank. They can reach out to you.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. And if you want to learn more about me, my website's probably the best place to learn more about me. It's miamimentor.com. You can contact me through it. And if you're a young lawyer and you want to, uh, learn more about the practice, you know, you can have my contact information. We can set up a call.
0: Frank, thanks so much for joining us today. It's been great having you on the show and uh, a lot to learn definitely go check out Frank's website at miamimentor.com and, and reach out to him if you've got any questions or if you've got a potential referral for him. Thanks for being on, Frank.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely. Thanks for listening to the 1958 Lawyer Podcast. If you like the show, tell a friend and please subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to hear more about Ron. Kirsten or Amada, go to amadaoffices.com. All the links are also available in show notes.